eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, back at the NBC Sports Charlotte studios, where I am joined by a Xfinity Series driver. I believe one of the first ones we've had on the podcast, we've got Tommy Joe Martins. Thanks for being here, Tommy uh, Joe. I didn't know I was one of the first Xfinity guys. That you makes know, me feel really privileged as now. I'm, as I'm sitting here like trying to jog my memory, I know that I've had, uh, I had on Brendan Poole a couple of years ago. Gosh, I don't know how many other Xfinity drivers I've had. Not enough, clearly. Happy to get the ball rolling. Thanks for being here on a Saturday afternoon and taking some time out from your weekend off here. Uh, Trucks are at Martinsville, Cups at Martinsville, but Xfinity is getting a a needed break after the West Coast swing. Thank goodness we're not at Martinsville. (laughs) I I have complained about not going to Martinsville, and I've never been happier that we're not at Martinsville right now because that (laughs) seems miserable the last couple of days. Kind of a tough place to be when there's snow in the forecast. Let's start by talking about you, Tommy Joe. Well, first of all, when my wife heard that I was going to be talking to you, she said, Tommy Joe seems like very much a racer's kind of name. If you were creating a NASCAR <laughs> driver like in a Petri dish in a laboratory, you might be inclined to go with a Tommy Joe type name. So where did you get that name? Uh, well, from my parents. It was actually off my grand, uh, my both my grandparents, Thomas and Joseph. So that's my full name, Thomas Joseph Martins. Shortened to Tommy Joe when I was really young, and it's always kind of stuck with me. And, and I think it's funny, Nate, because I'm from Mississippi, named Tommy Joe Martins, NASCAR driver, and that just conjures up an image in your head. <laughs> and I just think I've debunked like everything that people would think I would look like or sound like or do. You know, so I just I've always kind of thought it was funny. It's kind of stuck with me. And there were several triple name drivers there for a little bit. I think in the truck series, I, I kind of alluded to that laughing about it. It was like John Hunter, Nemechek, me, mm-hmm. Jennifer Joe Cobb. You still got Jennifer Joe. Austin Wayne Self. There was like several there for a little bit, and I just I was leaving the three-name crew there for a little bit. It's almost like on the entry blank mandatory that you have a third name if (laughs) you run the Camping World Truck Series. So you mentioned you're from Mississippi, Tommy Joe. You started out racing go-karts there. Give me a little bit of your background there. Gosh, we didn't know anything. (laughs) You know, I'm not from a racing background. Mm -hmm. Like, my dad didn't know anything about racing. I never had a family member that raced. It was just something. I saw a quote from Darrell Waltrip a long time ago when he said he walked by a department store and he'd seen a go-kart. His dad never raced or anything, but he just kept walking by this go-kart and he just said, man, I know I'd be good at that. And I think that was kind of my life. I just saw racing on TV and fell in love with it as a kid. I had to be put to sleep by old uh, Diamond P Motorsports drag racing with like Paul Page huh. calling it and stuff. And I just remember that so vividly on like TNN. It was all the NHRA stuff. And I just wanted to drive cars. I just always was in love with it. We started racing go-karts when I was young. Uh, failed at it twice. Um, I quit. I remember I was like six years old, maybe. And my dad took me out in a parking lot and he put two boots on the ground to make like a track for me to go around. 
And he said, okay. And he had this, by the way, we're, we're, I need to find Kyle Petty and tell him this story because we had it painted up like the mellow yellow car. <laughs> um, it was stickered up, black, 42. Uh, first thing I ever drove in my whole life. So this would have been, what, early 90s, around the time oh, yeah. Kyle Petty was winning in oh, the mellow yeah, yellow car. Kicking, he was kicking butt. Yeah. Uh, won every year at Rockingham. Big shout, Kyle Petty. That's my favorite driver there. So uh, <laughs> had it stickered up. I had a helmet to match, whole thing. So I got in this parking lot, sets out two boots on the ground. He says, okay, so I want you to drive around the boots, kind of get a feel for it. He said, just don't slam on the gas. Well, that was too late. I had already slammed on the gas. And I spun that sucker out and hit it into a curb and broke the nose of it. This is the first thing I did in a car ever. Cried, bruised my rib, went to run a dirt track race later that night because my dad asked me. He was like, well, I was going to take you to this race if you still want to go. And I said, yeah, I'll go. We showed up. It was in a barn uh, there in, like, south Memphis. Rode the brake the whole time finished dead last, qualified dead last, finished dead last. And then we just hung that up for like 10 years because I was so scared to death of it. Went back when I was older, obviously, and I was 16. Ran some go-karts, ran WKA, did that for a little bit. Uh, took another break because tires cost a lot of money, uh, <laughs> and even in a go-kart. It seems like I'm still fighting the same fight. Then got up to, uh, to college and whatever, typical college student being an idiot. And to kind of get me back on track, my dad said, well, you know, we can race again. And so he bought, a, he bought a sports car. He bought a 350Z, went out and ran SCCA for a little bit. Clearly, I had a knack for it. We wound up doing pretty well. And I knew I always wanted to get into stock cars. So did that, went back, started running some late model races, and then kind of went on from there. I think it got to a point, Nate, where my father was sitting there going, man, we might not have enough money to do this anymore. And he took a chance in 2009 and said, well, if we're not going to do this anymore, I want you to live your dream. He said, so I'm spending whatever we were spending on late model racing. And he just said, I'm just going to buy a truck. I'm going to buy a NASCAR truck and this old motor. We bought it from Roush. And we said, we're going to run a limited schedule. We're just going to take the same guys that were working on our late model and just, I mean, why not? Let's go, mm-hmm. let's go try it. Ran at ORP, ran uh, four races total. And that was kind of the start of my NASCAR career. It was basically just like, well, this might be the end of it. So let's, let's just take a shot. And, and really that's kind of turned into Martin's Motorsports and basically what was still the philosophy even even to last year was like, yeah, we might not have everything we need or would want, but we're going to go take a shot at it anyway. And that's kind of always been that. Is like, Where's the best competition? I think I'm good enough and I'm going to go race at the highest level I can. So that was nine years ago that you guys got into the truck series with your, your family-owned team. Growing up in Mississippi, Tommy Joe, you mentioned Memphis. Did you? So it was like the northern half of the state? Yeah. yeah so okay. I, I live about, or my family lives in a place called Como, Mississippi, which is about 45 minutes south of Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. So, so I both you say, and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. grew up like, kind yeah, of in oh, the suburbs. Yeah, he, he, he grew up uh, a la branch. I actually raced go-karts against him when I was young. And, and this is something my dad pointed out. <laughs> I'd forgotten about this. But, yeah, we probably raced go-karts against each other and obviously took a, a much different path and he's roughly my age mm-hmm. i think right so i'm Maybe 31 so yeah, yeah. He's, he's right there with me so we probably raced on a lot of the same little tracks and you mentioned you went to university of mississippi you graduated with a journalism degree with a journalism degree, and then presumably unlike myself and the rest of us you realized journalism was no place to earn a living and you decided racing would be <laughs> maybe the way to go oh god what a horrible choice that I made. <laughs> no yeah. i'm not so sure you know, again, knowing a like lot of journalists dividing. i'm not so sure <laughs> two dividing <laughs> paths there uh but no i was just consumed by it i loved it i got into sports journalism really I just knew that I was I was one of those people that went to college knowing exactly what they wanted to major in and it still took me like six and a half years uh, mainly because I bounced back and forth with racing so I mean I took time off to go race and I'd 
come back and take a semester and then I would, you know, so I kind of bounced all over the place with it, but eventually wrapped up, I believe it was 2012 or 2013, uh, but it was important to me and mm-hmm. it was really important to my family that we started this, even though it was a long time ago. I think I started going there in 2005. So when I graduated high school, and I think I wrapped up in 2012. So hey, yeah, I was many the, people are on the five or six or seven year plan. I was, no shame yeah, in that. Yeah, doctors, right? Yeah, so, exactly. uh, well, yeah. So you know. uh, eventually wrapped it up, and that was an important thing. And I, and I think it's really helped me understand a lot about coverage and media and press and everything as a whole, which is why I find myself in this weird situation where I know what I am. I, I drive for a small team, kind of a middle of the pack team. I've always been that guy. But I think I've always had an understanding of kind of what you guys are looking for, which is you're looking for a story and somebody to be their own person a little bit uh, is more engaging. And I don't know, over the last couple of years, I think I've embraced that a lot more and kind of my strengths. Mm -hmm. And it's turned out to where now I get to do interviews with you guys every once in a while. And it's pretty fun. Well, certainly it also gives you a chance. Now you can fall back on the financially lucrative journalism career. If the racing thing doesn't work out, you're running in the Xfinity series this year. Last year you did as well, but did you start with your family team and then you moved to BJ McLeod's team? Yeah. So we decided, uh, instead of getting our butt kicked in trucks, we would go try to get our butt kicked in Xfinity, uh, (laughs) which that it lasted all in one race before, um, We decided, wait a minute. No, I'm just kidding. We, we actually, I think we had a pretty good plan together. We were going to run about eight or nine races. And then uh, BJ McLeod called me and offered me a chance to drive his car. I took the opportunity. And, and I know that put our plans on hold with Martins Motorsports and what we had planned on with the Arthur Xfinity deal, um, which eventually turned into a deal with Austin Wayne Self, where he came and drove our truck. I believe it was about 10 races of the year, something like that. And so that, that kind of actually, in a weird way, BJ opened the door for my team to then – continue on with another driver which was exciting and so I got to kind of see more of a managerial side of the team which is I guess I'd always done but it was also still mainly for me to drive the truck and then it turned right. into okay when well, I got to manage this deal with another driver and another family and sponsors and everything else included with that and then I still had my racing career separate that was a cool thing and I, and I think that's what's made this year so much fun and I'm really disappointed that we weren't able to keep our truck team going it's one of my biggest regrets because I, I felt like we were a step away from being right the front of that next little pack there in trucks like maybe we would have been a top team but with this new engine and just a little bit of sponsorship behind us. I thought we really had a chance to make a little bit of a step forward this year. And so that's disappointing that we didn't get to do it. One level below Kyle Bush and Thor right. Sport. Like I think we could, that niche. Yeah, I think we could have been a contender for, for that 10th to 15th place run every mm-hmm. week, which that would have been awesome. I mean, that would have been really cool. And it would have been cool to see the progression of the team over the, the time. The worst time that we ever had would have been when I drove the truck. So that would have been not really <laughs> stellar to look back on. But it was also a time when the truck series was thriving in 2016. Mm-hmm. It had several, probably 25 fully funded teams. And so when we finished 26, that's probably where we should have finished honestly you know looking back on it um, so that was disappointing that we had to, to do that in the off season. we didn't have the funding to, to keep it going really enjoyed our time that we had with our our small team and the guys there and their hard work so regret there also relief that the only thing i have to worry about now is just being a race car driver and everything else is taken care of and i just show up and drive the sucker and right that is that is a true blessing and it has been for my family as well are you running the full xfinity season th- this year for bj mcleod or is it uh, it's gonna want to be in a partial season partial, yeah. and we're not sure exactly how many races it's going to turn into he's pretty good about letting me know about a month ahead of time yeah <laughs> anything that i'm going to run i think it's going to wind up being somewhere between 20 to 25 races okay. is what i think but we'll see. And I have one question about your car owner, because I don't know a lot about him. Again, we, we were talking before we got started here that 
this is another example of like a member of the media such as myself needs to be uh, fully versed in like everybody in every series if we could be, if I had enough time. But I'm not going to shame you too bad. I, I appreciate that. I walked by BJ McLeod though. I think the first time I saw him was a driver into a stage somewhere, but then I walked by him this year at Daytona when he was going to the motorhome lot. I was going back to the media center. And at first I thought it might have been Brett Michaels or Vince Neal <laughs> or some <laughs> other like 80s hair metal band guy. Didn't look I, like a driver no, or an owner, no. did he? He would seem maybe to have an interesting backstory. I don't know if you have any stories about him. Oh or? goodness. I, no, I've told him to his face he looks like an affliction ad like he walks straight out of one i mean you were talking about a guy who is tatted up has what could only be described as a, a straightened mullet <laughs> that's dyed jet black wears a chain like a silver chain with skulls all over it and this is uh, this is the facts this is not me presenting anything with commentary he wears boots that have like floral designs on them so this is, I mean, this is a guy that if you saw this guy in any kind of bar setting, you'd be like, I just don't really like that guy. I don't know what it That's is. maybe a guy I shouldn't go That's near. That's a guy I shouldn't go around. <laughs> yeah. And he is seriously the most genuine, nice person that I think I may have ever met in racing. And I mean that sincerely. He has been so upfront and clear and complimentary of me. And the opportunity that I have to drive his race car is an opportunity he could have given to dozens of people. Still, I'm not completely sure why he picked me. Uh, in 2016, it's not like I just lit the, the game on fire out there in the truck series. We struggled hard. And he saw a level deeper than that and right. said, you know what? This guy's actually got a lot of talent. He's just not in a situation to succeed. And I think he knew that his team was – they were struggling at the time when he offered me the ride at, uh, last year. That number wasn't guaranteed. It was low in the points. They had missed some races earlier. And so he basically said, you know, nobody's probably taking a chance on you. And at the time, nobody's probably taking a chance on me. And I want you to come in here and pick this team up and see if we can move this thing forward in the points. And by the end of it, uh, I look over the course of, I think I ran nine races for him last year. We had an average finish that was, I think it was about eight spots better than what the car had finished prior to me getting there. And over the course of time when I was there, kind of the people that we race against Nate and because, you know, that's like its own little pack. It's probably about 12 to 15 cars. We scored the second most points to anybody in that time mm -hmm. during those nine races. And so I look at that and I go, okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe that gives me like a little bit of renewed confidence. And we fired off this year pretty, pretty good for his team. I mean, honestly, we're finishing probably about five spots better than the average finish last year. So that's encouraging. And mm -hmm. you sit there and go, okay, now, what do we need to make the next jump? Because right. you're a racer, and you always want to finish better. And, and, I, and I'm not satisfied finishing 25th. I want to finish better. So it's been really a neat thing, and, and that's all because of BJ. So yeah. you're never going to hear a bad word here. And honestly, I don't think you're going to hear a bad word from anybody. And all the dealings with, like, the Johnny Davis and uh, Carl Long and all those owners in the back of the field, Rod Sieg and that bunch, they kind of run pretty tight because you're with them. You know, you're around each other every every week. And I don't think anybody would have a bad word to say about B.J. McLeod. Aside from the tats <laughs> yeah. and, and the skulls and, <laughs> yeah. and the mullet, aside from all that, is he just a regular car owner? I mean, what has he told you about his aspirations? I mean, put aside all that and just him as a team owner, does he sure. just want to try to get to that, that top tier? Does he have an ultimate goal in mind there? Look, I mean, this is a I – mean, I've said this <laughs> ad nauseum. I mean, this, drives, this business is driven by finances. He wants to run as good as he can without going broke. It's that simple. So there are going to be restrictions on what he's going to do. He's not going to go broke buying new tires for a weekend when he knows he can maybe turn a profit 
<laughs> if he turns one. I mean, I, I doubt that he does, but at least gets a lot closer doing what he's doing, which is mm-hmm. maybe run scuff tires every once in a while, maybe going with a smaller crew, maybe using one pit crew for two cars, which is what we've done several times, which is why I'm sure if I looked at my pit road stats, they'd probably be the worst in the history of the series um, because I, I come in second every time. And so he will come in and pit, then I'll come in and pit. And so I'm starting at the back of the field basically right. every single time. Right. So that probably wouldn't look great on a stat sheet. But we're doing what we have to do, what's best for the team long term. And what's best for the team long term is for it to not go out of business. <laughs> so he's going to take care of that first. And, but he's also a competitor and one of the most competitive guys I've ever been around. So believe me, he bites his lip on a lot of it. Absolutely. He laughs that I stir up so much crap over it. <laughs> but he really enjoys the fact how competitive I am, too. And we're both going to do everything we can do to finish as high as we can with what we got every single week. And right. uh, I think there's something admirable about that. So what is his overall goal for the team? I think he's happy in the Xfinity Series. He feels like there are places, even with the competitive imbalance, that he can go and have a top five run at a Daytona and Talladega. And he knows that if he did that in a cup car, that's just not that's not realistic. But maybe at a road course, he can get a top 10. Maybe at a Bristol, he can get a top 15. So there's something attractive to that that I think he wants to stay with a two-car, three-car team tops probably. But two-car deal and just try to get a little better every year. And it's small steps. It's like right now we have two flange fit cars. We both ran them every race for the last four races. So it was like, well, if you don't bring this thing back, you're going to be driving one that we just halfway <laughs> right. got put together. Because the Xfinity Series currently car. has two cars. The steel body cars weigh, what, 200 pounds more? 100, or yeah, 150 yeah. pounds more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that – Slight disadvantage. Like, right. So he goes, <laughs> all right, well, you don't want to wreck because you got – that's the only thing we got left. And so that makes you race smart. And that's something I've always had to do, though, because I always did it for my own team, which is why I was so disappointed we wrecked so stinking much in 2016, whether that was my fault or result of circumstance, regardless. But that's, that's, it. that's it. It's We're always thinking about the long term, not the short term. And I think maybe that's an issue with the whole sport as a whole, is we're looking at this weekend versus, like, this year. Maybe we need to think a little more long term. Well, you're certainly somebody, Tommy Joe, who looks at the big picture. You mentioned that – BJ alluded to the fact you like stirring things up, and I think certainly what got you on a lot of people's radar. One is is your use of social media. You're one of the, the younger drivers who does a great job with that. But two, you had a blog when you had the family truck team. You did a social spotlight with Jeff Gluck. You would re- later actually write a, a story for jeffgluck.com, but I first learned of you pretty much through that social spotlight that, that Gluck had done with you last year, and you felt like the business model in trucks didn't really work and you wanted to call a- attention to that so you know what you told Jeff and, and what you wrote on the blog and what you were trying to get out there and, and whether you feel like you accomplished your goal uh, I would definitely say I haven't accomplished the goal <laughs> but but what was the goal was the goal change things I think you and I would agree that change is going to happen very slowly was the goal start a conversation well I feel like I did that I think I maybe encouraged people to speak up about some of this stuff that maybe had never done that before. Mm-hmm. And that's both reporters and, and drivers and teams. And I think I've noticed a, a definite uptick in that over the last few years. I'm not going to say that I you know, was the pioneer here. I'm not, I'm not going to say that. Uh, there were, I'm sure, dozens and of people that have uh, 
dealt with the same struggles that we've dealt with as trying to run a small team in NASCAR. Long before they had a platform like with a blog or social media, there were <laughs> there have been teams that probably have endured the same challenges. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm not the first one to ever do that. But I think I was in a weird position or a unique position, not a weird position, but a unique position that I had the background to maybe spell that out better mm-hmm. than other people had before and explain it in a way that maybe it had never been explained. And so that was my thing with the blog is it initially was a place for me to maybe vent a bit. And I think it turned into me realizing that nobody else was going to tell the story except for me. You and I were talking before the podcast and I said that I never got interviewed on TV in the entire 2016 season, the entire time I was out there, which is a little frustrating when you have a sponsor on your truck and you're showing up every week. It's demoralizing in a way. And I look back on that and I go, you know, that's probably the only time in my life. I hope not, but it might be the only time in my life that I got to run a a full season in a top three NASCAR division. Like this will be a partial schedule with BJ. So it's the only time maybe that I'll ever get to do that. And it was such a challenging year and up and down. And I look back on those blogs now and it really just tells a story of that. If nobody else ever read it, at least in 20 years, I'll be able to look back on it and go, that's what it was like. Right. And you were t- documenting history in that's a way. It. Right. That's what it was like in that First moment. Person view. That's and that's how I felt. And I think that's how I expressed it in the blog was these are my feelings and this is what we're going through. And it was all from my perspective, which not everybody's gonna agree with my perspective on things. And they're gonna see it from a different light. Like I'm sure NASCAR saw a few of those blogs right. in a very different perspective than how I saw them. But we lived it. We went through it. And so that was always my frustration was anytime anybody would ever come out against me in any of that stuff. It's like, well, I'm sorry. Are you running the team? Are you dealing with this on a day-to-day basis when we wreck a truck and we have to pay for it and figure out a way? No, you're not. So there's like a certain level of criticism that you will take. And there's some that you just go, man, you have no idea what it's like back Mm -hmm. here. And I think that was it. Just shedding light on that and also explaining some of the issues that we had to deal with. Uh, from an operation standpoint that I still think teams are dealing with now. And so that's why I'm, I, fr- I get frustrated when I don't th- see things change that I think could be changed. Like, I don't want to be unrealistic here, Nate. Like, I'm not expecting every problem in NASCAR to be fixed overnight. I'm not. But when we start talking about five and ten year periods that I've been in the sport and I don't see significant change to the financial model, well, then I get a little frustrated and I go, well, what are we working on? Because it seems like the health of the sport would depend on the health of the teams as much as it does on NASCAR itself because they are the ones showing up every week. They're putting on the show. Like, as far as I know, NASCAR doesn't have a car out there in the field. Let's hope not. (laughs) If if they did, they didn't tell me (laughs) about it. I would love to to put my name in the hat for that driving job because that would be a pretty good one. I think it's a safe assumption to make that this is it's all incumbent upon the teams, as you say, Tommy Joe, showing up and certainly NASCAR sets the rules and sets the schedule and signs all of the ancillary contracts to make all of it possible, but really comes down to having teams and team owners and drivers who are willing to put themselves out there and, and spend that money. I should just say right here that Tommy Joe's blog is still up, and I believe you can get there by going off of uh, your Twitter account. I think, I think there's a link to your Yeah, I'm site sure there in, is. In it's the TommyJoeMartins.com. If yeah. it's not on there, it's just TommyJoeMartins.com. I'm it, lucky nobody else stole that one from me. <laughs> yeah, good job of uh, being a pioneer there and, yeah. and staking that claim. And also, as a, you know, somebody with journalism training, I can appreciate 
not only that blog being therapeutic and being able to like just tell people, hey, this is where I am, this is where things are, but as the first draft of history, as somebody who is a fan of journalism, but also a fan of, of studying history, I mean, it's good that we have that kind of source material out there and that people can go back and look and see, like, hey, here was one person's view. Maybe you don't agree with it, but can totally respect the fact that putting your view out there is important. It's interesting you say that because you and I realized, because I'd never done anything close to writing that big before right. before I wrote that. Right. And I guess I didn't understand the reach that that would have. And the, All it takes is just a couple of people to make something go viral. And honestly, <laughs> that's I what I've learned in this I business. I can attribute Jeff Block yeah. and you and Kelly Crandall and some, some of the other journalists that I would tag in some of those posts for really appreciating it. Honestly, the, the response to it really blew me away, good and bad. And that's kind of the follow-up to that is I didn't realize that when I wrote something really personal like that, because it was a very, at times, very personal account. Because you're admitting sometimes like, hey, I screwed up. The team is down a truck. We lost tens of thousands of dollars. It's my fault. Absolutely. I didn't realize when you write something like that, it might not always go over the way you expected it to because it's not yours anymore. Mm -hmm. Once it's out in the public forum, yeah. it's not yours anymore to decide what it is. And so I got a few of those blogs spun in a way, in a whirlwind. Now, look, I wrote some stuff that I knew was going to be controversial at the time. All right. I knew it. But I guess I wrote some others that I didn't see that were going to be that way. And maybe it was a reputation or an expectation or something that it got turned into that anyway. And mm -hmm. I realized, okay, I'm going to write this. I'm writing it for me. And whatever somebody peels off of this is kind of on them. And I would look at the comment sections on Reddit and uh, on my own website at times. And it was like the discussions that were happening and the fights that were happening and the criticisms of me and every word under the bus that you could use. Uh, you know, it was just so wild to me that that is how it got turned. And so really just speaking to that whole experience of writing it, which is why I took a step away from doing it. Uh, by the end of it, I just went, wow, what is this now? What are people expecting this to be now? Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, when you write something putting out there in the public sphere, you do cede control of what you're saying to some regard. And a wise journalist once said, don't ever read the comments section. Although I will say, like, it's important to interact with people. I try to answer every question I get on social media, and I, I say half-jokingly I never read the comments. Sometimes I do because, like, in some ways they're completely unproductive, but in some ways, as you said, you're going to—the whole point of putting your perspective out there is you're going to get other people's perspectives, or you're going to get perspectives from NASCAR <laughs> right. of people calling and saying, hey, did you think about this? That's— as you said, you're starting a conversation, starting a discussion, and that, to me, is, is the benefit. I had that conversation with someone a little while ago. We talked about the input of random people on your overall mentality of what you're saying, and, and that's the problem is I did read the comment section. And the ones where somebody says, wow, this guy's an idiot, all right, actually, that's pretty easy to dismiss. But the one that says, this guy, the only reason he's here is because his dad put the money up for the team and he doesn't have any talent. He finishes 25th every week. Look at how many times he's wrecked. This guy has no business saying anything. Mm -hmm. They should just get rid of him. This guy shouldn't even be in the sport. Why do we even listen to this clown? That kind of stuff. Because it's untrue. That That's the stuff that cuts close to home. But right? it cuts <laughs> so close. And yeah. so that, it was just so discouraging at times. And there were so many good comments 
but you don't focus on that. You right. focus on those other ones. Let's go back to the finances real quick, Tommy Joe, because I want to talk about what has changed. As the journalist, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, and we, we can look at both truck and Xfinity and see from the NASCAR perspective, you mentioned in the Xfinity series, they now have composite bodies, the flange fit that's intended to be somewhat, I would think, of, of a cost reducer and a, a way to level things a little bit performance-wise. And in the truck series this year, you have what essentially is a spec engine. So I want to get your thoughts on on both of those things. Are those the incremental steps you're looking for to, to address what you brought up? It's something. It's a start. I sure wish we had that spec motor when I first got started in this deal. Uh, you don't realize just how far you are off of the front mm -hmm. until now you see the people in the front running the spec motor and you go, wow, what was the gap before this? So I'm absolutely going to applaud NASCAR for making that change because they made that change in the face of quite a bit of criticism from all the manufacturers, which I find appalling from the manufacturer's side of this, um, which I dealt with one of the manufacturers uh, last year when I was trying to keep our truck team afloat, approached him about swapping our bodies. We were a Chevrolet team at the time, of which Chevrolet had always given us a little bit of performance data, but not much financial support or you know, bodies or anything like that. So I wanted to swap, and they basically said they weren't going to do that, that they were just going to pull out because this spec motor was something they had discussed with NASCAR and they didn't like it. And as far as they were concerned, if that car had a spec motor in it or that truck had a spec motor in it, that that wasn't their brand, which is hilarious because it has their brand all over the truck and on the crew uniforms and on the driver uniforms and it looks like your branded truck and it is your branded truck. It just doesn't have that motor under the hood, which what fan cares about that? Nobody. It has never been easier for a manufacturer to get into NASCAR than it is right now. It has never been easier in the truck series. How are there not 20 manufacturers down there? I say that obviously being a bit over the top, but how is Nissan not in? They have a truck. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why is Dodge not in? And we're at a point now where if you just made a nose and a tailpiece, you have a truck. That's it. Because the motor is going to be the same. You don't even have to develop that as far as cost goes. So how are there not incentive programs there for manufacturers to, to do this? We're in an era now where we have a flange fit body in the Xfinity series. Now, I would debate whether or not it is actually cheaper mm -hmm. than where we were, which was surprising to me and unfortunate. Because I believed that it was going to be, if not initial cost cheaper, I thought the cost of maintenance would be a lot cheaper which it still might be in the long run, but in the short run, we haven't really seen that cost savings yet. So I don't want to comment on it. I still think it's a good idea. I think you were losing so much aero-wise and on a technical side, body-wise, that you're still losing some. Let's think about this, Nate. Anytime you put in spec racing, there's still going to be an advantage to being a more profitable or more well-funded team. If you say that each body is going to be within a quarter inch, well, if you have a lot of funding, you're just going to buy 10 bodies and find which one actually gets that quarter inch and then put that one on your race car, right? So there's tolerances, but we've probably never been closer than we are now. So that's encouraging. And so if you take a spec motor and a spec body, roughly, well, that we've never been that close from, I say this from the perspective of a small team. So that's encouraging. That's nice. But even with all that, 
the model still isn't profitable. In mm. fact, the opposite. And that is very discouraging. So even though there are cost-cutting measures in place, and I'm hoping there are more to come, it's still not there yet, which is what builds up my frustration because it's a model that we fought um, with my whole family's money for a long time. And it seems like there hasn't been a big breakthrough on this thing yet. This is a tough question to ask. Tommy Jones is going to ask it anyway, but why should it be fair to ask that all NASCAR teams can be profitable? Because when I look at auto racing and, and try to look at it versus franchising and other professional sports, obviously it's just not analogous on its face. But when I look at the way other pro sports teams operate, I think there's more, you know, the Panthers are for sale and they're going to fetch north of $2 billion because it's just understood that there are mechanisms in place there that are going to generate revenue guaranteed every year. Why do you think it's fair to ask that it, the same should be true in NASCAR, which has always existed on this sort of independent contractor model? We're not here to be some sort of centralized league where everybody's going to make money, profit sharing, although granted things have changed somewhat from that perspective with charter system in the Cup Series in recent years. But just philosophically, why do you think that teams should be able to make money? I think that is the future of this. Like, how do you attract the next generation of people to own these teams? Who is that? Now, this is a conversation that you and I had a little before we started here. Who's the next generation of owners? Who's the next generation of people that are going to be willing to lose millions of dollars a year in order to put a race car out there on that track? In an era that it's becoming tougher and tougher to find sponsors, I've had multiple sponsors that I've approached just say, we do no above-the-line marketing at all. We don't spend any money on advertising. We only focus on social media stuff. That's it. The whole market is shifting. And if you want to talk about 40 cars being out there on that racetrack every week, you cannot reasonably expect all of them to be losing money. It's directly affecting the competition side of this. And this is where I really have a bone to pick as a competitor is people are getting rides and have gotten rides and people that want to say that this is always how it's been. Well, that doesn't make it right. Think about how many times in history somebody said, well, we've always done this like this. How's that argument usually stand up over the test of time? Not so well. Not great. Not, not a fan of that. No. Probably the worst argument right. that you can possibly bring up is, well, we've always done it like this. That has never looked great in the annals of history. There are quality drivers and crew members and people that want to be a team owner in this sport that are being stripped of the opportunity simply because of their financial upbringing simply because they don't have the connections to have a sponsor. It's it's a fair point. I guess two questions that, that I have that stem from it. One, like, can it really be done off of cost containment? I mean, can, can cost containment be a winnable battle in racing, which is so different from other professional sports that don't have thousands of parts and pieces and, and hundreds of people working uh, to generate results as opposed to other teams, which might have a few dozen. Um, and then the other thing I would ask is just, to me, racing has always been shaped, especially NASCAR, by the market forces of capitalism. So is some of this the responsibility of teams more so? I mean, can cost, I guess they're kind of interrelated. Can cost containment really lead to teams uh, behaving in predictable ways that are going to ensure that they can make a profit? Right. And that's where this turns into there's always going to be the people that outspend their means. Right, right. And you'll never stop that. Right. Ever. But I think 
what I tried to propose last year with Jeff Gluck was maybe a restructuring of how we split this money up a bit mm -hmm. to make a small team like mine who we had four employees, four, to run the whole season. We used scuffed tires all year. We ran the same motors for three to four races at a time. We ran the same trucks eight or nine times in a year. If we can't make it, who can make it? It's not like we were paying everybody millions of dollars to work on these things. Right. We had a very small staff. So if we can't make it, then nobody can make it. And look, all I'm saying is I think a team like that that's doing things small but still trying to compete. There's got to be some assurances. There has to be some level of like, okay, those guys ought to be able to make it on the prize money alone. They ought to be able to scrape by and show up to every race and not have to worry about buying the tires. And that's all I'm asking for here. I'm not asking you to make me a millionaire. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking for NASCAR to make me a bunch of money. But I think there should be a level that we're at that we've never been to, and it's simply because there's never been more money flowing through this thing as it is right now, that it actually is probably achievable now that that middle half of the field is profitable. Now, look, if you want to spend more money and more R&D and get more people and have a bigger shop and show up to everything with you know, this big hauler that's got satellite everything on it and go for it we're not gonna stop you mm -hmm. and will it help yeah probably so it probably will help but we're gonna at least say if you do this responsibly you should be able to at least make a small profit every year and not have the axe constantly hanging over your head which is we lost a funded driver and now we're broke and now the team's out of business and who do I sell my equipment to? And I'm going to get pennies on the dollar for it, and I'm just toast. Which is why the charter system was first introduced. It was after Michael Waltrip racing, which to me, that is one of the great tragedies of our time. I love Michael Waltrip. And you had a guy there, younger, had a partner with Toyota, had sponsors lined up. One pivotal tipping point where he lost a sponsor which, well, to be fair, they were responsible for. They have to own that, absolute, that, that scandal at Richmond. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure he would say the same thing. But when the thing when the thing started crumbling, what was left? They sold off all their cars for pennies on the dollar, all their equipment for nothing. They got no money back. Rob Kaufman had invested millions of dollars into this company. What did he get out of it? Not much. Yeah. And so the charter system was introduced as this backup plan. It was like, well, at least you'll have this artificial thing to sell that will at least get you some of the money. But to me, it was just like a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the basic core of this is not right. And I think if you told those type of owners, the Derek Copes of the world, the Morgan Shepherds of the world, those guys that are older and doing whatever it takes to get by at this point, and honestly, I see those guys as legends. So this is not me in a slight in any way. But what if those guys were able to transition into ownership and know that that was going to make them money too and they could bring in a younger driver and take a chance on somebody and still turn a profit? What if a driver could get hired purely on skill, not saying they're going to get rich, but they're going to get like a small salary and all they have to do is show up and drive and the team owner doesn't feel committed to take money from maybe a lesser skilled driver to make up the difference in the balance sheet. To me, that seems like the future of this thing, not 
multi-million dollar shops and everything, I think there's going to be a huge correction where this thing returns back to maybe what it was in the early 90s, which was a, right. a cup team was 10 people and they just were on the road a lot. And that that is sustainable to me, especially looking at the projections of this thing moving forward from a fan base and where the demographics are and everything. I think there just needs to be more planning towards sustainability here, Nate. That's all I'm saying is right. maybe we're in a time where, yeah, it still works, but what's it going to be in 10 years? Right. Maybe we should at least start looking towards what might be more sustainable. And that's where I've tried to drive the conversation. It, they're fair points, Tommy Joe, and they're, they're well-made. And certainly I think there's already some signs that, that some of that, that resetting that we've heard people talk about a lot, I think there's been some tangible signs that that, that is happening in some ways. Aside from the financials, I, I think you've also got some really outspoken points about drivers uh, and the need to be relatable, which which I've seen you make m- more than a few times this year. As someone who's uh, a member of Generation X, I don't always relate to where the millennials are coming from these days. You're, you said 31? 31. And so I think you have definitely more of a window into this than I do. What do you think younger drivers can do to differentiate themselves? Obviously, you're, you're a sharp guy, college graduate. You have a news savvy from your background. You use social media well. Not all of them have that. What would you tell younger drivers who are trying to set themselves apart? Like, What do you think that they need to do? I really don't know. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> it's okay. I don't know because I, I didn't know. I didn't know. And because of that, I struggled with confidence for a long time in this. I didn't feel like I deserved to be here. It's only in the last maybe a year or so that I think I've really felt, I mean, this is even including 2016. I don't think I felt comfortable in my own skin. I felt like I needed to prove something to everyone. And maybe that in a way was why I wrote the blog. I'm writing down kind of the history of the things that I've been through, but maybe in a way I'm validating myself to a lot of people, honestly, to a lot of journalists that cover the sport. Like you said, that was the first time you'd heard of me. Well, I had been out there in 2009. Right. I was out there in 2012. You know, I, I was out there in 2014. I ran half a season in the Xfinity Series. But I get so many people that tell me, oh, well, I I heard about you in 2016 when you were writing the blogs. Well, I've been doing this for a while. But 2016 was the first time you really put yourself out there. Here's the real version of me telling it like it is. True. And I think there was an expectation that people were going to come up to me to find out about me and interview me and talk to me and just because I was there. And that's just not true. And I think there needs to be a realization of that for younger drivers that nobody's going to do the work for you. So if you want to get your name out there, it's going to take a little bit of effort on your part. Now, you and I will debate how much effort should that really be. Yeah, yeah, that might be a, a discussion for the next podcast. Right, because you yeah. and I will fight over that a little bit. Yep. I believe that if there's only like 70 or 80 of us in the world, you should at least know how to say my name properly <laughs> on television. Yes. Uh or at least treat me the same. I heard Jimmy Johnson when he was talking about how he managed the Cowboys teams in the early 90s. He said, you treat everyone fair, but you don't treat them the same. And I love that. And I think that's a really good way to look at maybe the media and the way this whole thing is working as, a, as right. an industry. I'm not expecting right. a journalist to treat me the same that they treat Jimmy Johnson. Or in your case, Christopher Bell is automatically going to get a, a level of coverage that you understand there's an expectation there, but you want them to at least acknowledge that, hey, we know what the Tommy Joe Martin story is. We know what B.J. McLeod's story is, that, that there needs to be a little bit of 
recognition there. Right. I worry about and laziness is not the right word because that is such a derogatory word because, oh, you guys work your absolute butts off every week. I see it, how hard it is to hustle around and, and do everything that you guys do. So it is not that. But I think it is monotony in a way. It seems like you're telling the same story a lot. And so I get frustrated when I see that because mm-hmm. I go, wow, there are so many great stories back here. And it's not that we're not racing for anything. That's where the frustrating narrative is to me is I go, I'm racing my butt off and 23rd place matters to us because we're fighting over being in the top 30 in points in the Xfinity series because the top 30 gets a $6,000 bonus every week. And so if you're in the top 30, you're guaranteed that bonus. BJ has both of his cars in the bonus right now. It's $12,000 a weekend to a small team. But yet when I finish 24th, is that sexy? No, it's not. It's not a sexy story. But the fact that I beat the other 10 people that are vying for that same money, that's a big deal. That's a different way to tell that story, certainly. And that's interesting. That's, and so for somebody to just not know or not care. Or perhaps is, not be fully versed, versed in all of the particulars of the economics. Because and let's fair. be honest, there's, there's a lot to oh, absorb <laughs> trying to understand the way and, that the purse money is paid yeah, out and nascar and, is like trying to solve a math equation and we're not privy to a lot of that right. information i know that a lot of it sure. might be like listed in entry blanks or or when you when you go and do whatever with nascar to declare yourself a team and certainly the charter sure. system we don't have access to we we got a brief little glimpse into that this week because of a bankruptcy court hearing and absolutely we we mainly don't that, that i know that again this is which is probably on, pod. which is on purpose <laughs> yes. i believe you have to start yeah. thinking that's probably on purpose <laughs> a little bit right uh but i think there's probably a level of respect that needs to occur on both sides and i and i can say from personal account here nate that that is not always the case on both sides right right that's fair um i don't think there's a lot of respect from the back of the field towards the journalists because they feel like they don't want to talk to them right that they don't care that their stories just don't matter and i think there's not a lot of respect from the journalist side towards the mid or back of the pack because they go well they're finishing 25th and they're dirty and they're roll they don't have that pit box that i can walk up to and put on camera and so i'm just going to shy away from that and so there's a level of respect there that i think needs to be equaled out now to our point earlier about a younger driver making his mark you're just going to have to be more proactive right admittedly right nobody that i have ever approached has ever been rude to me ever you guys don't bite. So you got to put yourself out there a little bit. And what makes you different? And I know that's what a lot of these symposiums and stuff that NASCAR is doing to try to push. What makes you different? Well, if you're doing the same press packet and the same everything that you're doing every week and the car ran pretty good, thank the team, thank the crew. Right. Just want to say uh, we're looking forward to next week. Okay. That's not interesting no when you when we say be yourself we really mean you really have to be yourself it's not interesting (laughs) you can't just repeat the same tired pablum but because you're putting yourself out there because it's tommy joe martin's unfiltered to the world there's value in that for a journalist exactly it it stands out so when you say be yourself and i think it's okay to have a hot take every now and then yeah it's okay (laughs) to say something that maybe is a little unfiltered every now and then i've done it i've done it plenty now i'm not always trying to be the you know, the pot stirrer that everybody wants to make me out to be. I actually think I'm a pretty level-headed, nice guy when it comes to most things here. So you don't have to be that. You can be goofy. It's okay. Like, Spencer Gallagher is hilarious. 
I think he's really funny. And I bet that makes for a great interview. That's fine. Like, you don't have to be the hot take guy. You don't have to be the guy yeah. complaining about stuff all yeah. the time. Well, like, there can't be 30 hot take guys because no, then no one would stand be. out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we do need some But you got to be something. You can't, you can't be the same thing. You wrote that you've had team owners tell you that you can be a race-winning championship contending driver. Do you believe them every time you hear that? Or do you think some of that is motivated by what you see with guys just looking for sponsor money that a driver might bring? Yeah, you always have to question it, don't you? Yeah. And that's not questioning your abilities, obviously. But, I mean, do you naturally have maybe some self-doubt when you hear that? I think I still have the self-doubt. Still. I think that's something I battle with currently, Mm -hmm. is self-doubt. Every time I get in that race car, especially when you don't have anything to point to, to go, man, I just completely overachieved right there. And we had moments. But it's all like subtle moments, mm-hmm. it's like finishing 11th. And then Garrett Smithley finished right in front of me, which really pissed me off, by the way. Garrett, I know you're going to listen to this. <laughs> Garrett finished 10th at Iowa last year, and I finished 11th right behind him, and that made me mad. But like you have these moments where you go, yeah, we did it. But then there's always the other side where it's like, well, what is doing it? Finishing 24th? Is that like a big moment Like that I really just outdrive everybody? Like, yeah, I beat the people that I think we could beat. Did I do anything really great? Did I do anything big? And so when I've had those team owners approach me which has now been a handful especially when I was early going in this it was uh one of them I can just name drop here it was an ARCA owner named Eddie Sharp who actually owned a team in the truck series there for a little bit when he tried to move up that team I can just tell you they had a budget in an ARCA series of two million dollars a year they've had some cup drivers driving there Scott Speed Scott Speed right yeah Scott Speed was the big one so when Scott Speed was there he was trying to recruit me over there to his race team this is when we were first getting started uh, and he basically said at the time, he had a few drivers on the team. I think they were running three cars. And he said, uh, you've probably got more talent in your little finger than one of these guys has or will have in his entire life. And he said, and I know that if I put you in this car right now, that you would be a contender for the championship. In Arca. In Arca. He said, but it is what it is. We have to have the money to be able to run this thing at this level. And so when you hear that, first of all, it's flattering. But it's also very disappointing <laughs> and very, very heavy to weigh on a 20-year-old because you basically say you're good enough to make it, but you're not good enough to make it. And I just have fought so hard the last couple of years, kicking and screaming, wanting nobody to ever feel that. I don't want everybody to ever feel that, to feel like they are good enough to make it to the bigs, and they can't because they don't have the connections to the money that it takes to make it to the bigs. That is just so demoralizing for a sport. Like, are we a sport at that point? Like, if a draft pick in the NBA was dependent on whether or not they could bring money to the Bulls, are you really a sport, or are you kind of like a like a club at mm-hmm. that point? It's, is it really a professional deal? So that's disappointing. So how much is true, and how much is them brushing it up? I think a few times it was them brushing it up. But I've also had owners now in my current situation that will remark at how much I'm doing with what we have and that how the car for BJ that I'm in right now, last year they said, I never had to worry about that car. Never. That was a back of the pack car. And every time you get in it, I'm worried about it. And I know we have to beat you. That's where you take some pride. And maybe that might be all I ever get out of this, Nate. Mm -hmm. I might never get a checkered flag. Gosh, I hope I do. I feel like I'm good enough to, but I might never get that. Maybe I'll just take away a little bit of comfort knowing, you know what, I was good enough to be here. You've essentially answered my final question, Tommy good. Joe, which is knowing you're a realist, where would you want to be? What's the hope now? It sounds as if if it's 
mid-level journeyman Xfinity driver for the next five or ten years, that would be good enough for you. I don't want to be resigned right. to just being okay. I, you know, I, I, in, a, in a realistic way, I think in the current model of the sport, I'm kind of stuck where I am until I get that breakthrough. Like, But it's also encouraging to see that Blake Cook got that breakthrough. Blake Cook dealt with way more than I ever dealt with. I mean, he drove start and park cars for several years. I mean, Blake tells the same story. There were plenty of people that never had talked to him until he was driving for Colic Racing. I'm talking about this from journalists, other drivers, other owners. He didn't matter. Mm-hmm. He was just a back marker field filler guy that was just taking up a spot. And then when he got that opportunity and then he's first in practice at Bristol, everybody goes, oh, wow, this guy can drive. Yeah, well, guess what? A lot of them can. A lot of us can drive at this level. I know that's surprising. <laughs> you get to the top level of motorsports in America and some people can drive. It's a motor sport. That's what it says. It says motor sport in front of it. So obviously it depends on the ride you're in. Yeah. Now that's the stuff we don't like talking about because it's way more interesting to talk about the drivers racing against each other. I race against drivers too in the middle of the pack every week that are really good. And it takes a lot to beat them. It's tough, especially if you don't have the same finances. And not to belabor that point, but that's what it takes to have that breakthrough. I'm not giving up on that. What would I be happy with at the end of my life, <laughs> like at the end of my career? It's my dream now to run in the Daytona 500. One time, just once. That'd be cool. If I could do it <laughs> just one time. And maybe one really good shot at a high-quality ride for I at least a few races just know. to see where you would shake out? I would love just to, to know. Just to know. Just to know. Yeah, if Junior Motorsports picked up the phone and said, yeah, uh, we need somebody to fill in. Sure, absolutely. I want to know. I want to know. But I also know that opportunity is so rare. But it does take that. And everybody would say that. Everybody that's in that NASCAR Hall of Fame, I'm sure Dale Jarrett would tell you, it took a break. It took some kind of break. Yeah, it, it took, took a, a break few. for everybody. <laughs> yeah. There's one break. And maybe it's just a break that I haven't had yet. I got a break with BJ McLeod. He gave me my first break ever. This is the best one that I've ever had in my life. Is it top level? No. Maybe that's still to come. I know that you're never going to find that break sitting on your couch. And that's why I'm never going to say no. Like, don't say no. I would encourage all drivers at every level. If you get an opportunity, I don't care how bad you might think it is, don't be discouraged by it. When I was getting into this, they said, well, the last thing you ever want to do is get in a middle-of-the-pack ride because you get labeled as a middle-of-the-pack guy and you're just not any good. Hopefully, we can change the narrative there. If that's all I ever do is change that narrative a little bit, that would be encouraging, that there's a lot of guys back there that can drive, and they're just waiting for an opportunity. Whether I ever get one or not, we'll see, but I'm waiting for mine. Can't win the game if you don't play. I feel like that narrative is starting to change. I saw Mark Martin. Actually, he said that on this podcast last year. He said that he encouraged when Bubba Wallace had his chance with RPM, and then after that, he encouraged him, take whatever you can find. Because Absolutely. it's like you just said, Tommy Joe, I mean, it's better than, than being on your couch. Certainly good to see you on the track and having that chance now. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review, please do so. That really helps us out. If you have any feedback for the NASCAR NBC podcast, please send to me on Twitter. At Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast.
Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.